It's Friday. It's the 11th of September. It's the Sustainable Futures Report and I'm Anthony Day. Welcome. This time I'll be catching up on stories shared during August by listeners from Australia, Japan and other parts of the world. Closer to home, Extinction Rebellion's protests continue to make headlines, although you may not have seen them as Extinction Rebellion blockaded several presses last weekend and many newspapers didn't make it to the shops. But first, let's talk about diet. If we are environmentalists, should we be vegan? On the Sustainable Futures Report this time, I have two guests, Sammy Bishop, a recent graduate in human physiology and a vegan, and Deirdre Lane, who describes herself as a green finance expert who's morphed from traditional commodity markets to empowering citizens on sustainable actions. She is not a vegan. What started this all off for me was the idea of veganism and some quite strong opinions. And I believe there are some quite strong opinions on veganism. And therefore, I was very interested to hear what Sammy said recently uh, about veganism. Now, I understand that you've been a, a vegan for about two years. So that suggests you weren't brought up in a vegan household. So what was your motivation in becoming a vegan in the first place, Sammy? Um, no, you're right. I've been vegan for just over two years now. And veganism stemmed from hearing about the the climate change and the challenges our planet is facing just in general culture and across the news and seeing the pretty irreversible direction we are currently traveling in. And I started by making the very standard changes of my reusable coffee cup, um, trying to use less plastic when I can and upon just reading and watching documentaries about the overwhelming evidence for the positive impact that a vegan diet can have on our planet it just about two years ago ago became the inevitable next step that I took to try and minimize my personal impact on the planet and that's my vegan journey really and I've been going strong for two years ever since so two years without any backsliding or any secret um, burgers or anything like that? Nothing ever intentional. I, I once drunk from the wrong cup of coffee, but I don't, I don't uh, put myself down for that. Okay, so your, your right cup of coffee has got well, almond milk or something like that in it? Good soya cappuccino is my go-to. Aha, okay, okay. Now, I've spoken to you about this, Deirdre, and you expressed some cynicism about the value of veganism. Do you want to expand on that a bit? Well, starting with the almond milk, if you consider the plight of the bees, the commercial harvesting of, of the almond with the bee population, so more bees are abused in the US, and they're classified actually in the US as livestock. So more bees die every year in livestock in the US above fish and above um, agricultural ingestion of, of animal protein and animal meat. So it's quite incredible that yes, we do want to do the right things, but are we doing it in the right way? And are we considering all of biodiversity in our circular thoughts? So yes, let's go for the almond milk. However, let's have a rethink of it. How is the almond milk coming to you? Is it in a plastic container? What's the carbon footprint and biodiversity footprint of your almond latte? But it's fascinating how you can phrase the coffee 
um, consumption. I was in a cafe in London and they said, do you want to have an 80% less carbon coffee? And of course I said, yes, and it was actually an oatmeal coffee. So yes, absolutely reduce the, the, the input of dairy, but how are we going to do it? At, at what price to nature? And you mentioned plastic is quite curious as part of plastic free July audits. Um, I went through all my presses and most of my plastic food sources were actually um, my vegan food sources. So, you know, the packages of Plasta and the packages of the, um, all the other lentils, et cetera, I was really um, concerned that even if you do want to go vegan and vegetarian, it really increases your use of plastic, which I was quite concerned about actually. So you're trying to do the good things, you're trying to change your diet, but in fact, are you accidentally damaging nature and increasing your plastic use? Well, how do you find that, Sammy? I mean, tell, tell us about the, what, what you eat now. I mean, uh, I, I think a vegan menu to many of us is, is a completely closed book. So to open it up and give us some information, would you? Yes. Um, and just to note, I am not by choice gluten free as well. So perhaps my vegan diet isn't the most representative in some ways, but um, my main especially to begin with my main vegan diet as you say was very grain and pulsy things like chickpeas and lentils either tinned or from a packet and and very vegetable and nut heavy and as i say things like burgers and things being gluten-free certain a lot of the vegan meat alternatives mince and chicken and things like that the vegan alternatives aren't in fact gluten-free so perhaps mine isn't the most representative but a lot of pulses and grains to get that um variation in the vegan diet is where I focus mine. And I think your point about plastic is interesting. I know from a from my personal experience, before I bought lentils in plastic, I bought, for example, chicken in plastic. And so although that is a very important point that you can't focus on the food solely, for the average person walking down the street trying to do their bit even if it's not a perfect and there are complications and confusions about how to make your diet completely zero planet impact, which is of course, it's never going to happen if you're growing, consuming products. Um, you've got to at least be trying to take a step in the right direction. And I think if you start saying, overloading people with too much information about the, the meat, the vegetables, the plastic, am I better to have a can of chickpeas or a bag of chickpeas? It can become overwhelming and an individual may just panic and say that I can't process that much information. Let me just carry on as normal. And that's what I think you've got to think of the nuance of these situations, but be careful of the average person overanalyzing every single thing that touches their lips sort of thing. Okay. And how do you feel? I mean, some people say that, a vegan diet is defective it is defective in certain nutrients or vitamins or things like that uh, do you feel as healthy more healthy less healthy than you did two years ago i can with total honesty say i felt no difference whatsoever some people claim that it is is more healthy and i'm sure that's true for me not a single thing changed in how i felt how much energy i had how much i performed I know it obviously is different for different people, but um, we, some world-class athletes even are vegan. And so for most people, one would assume if you, you have less energy demands on your body than a world-class athlete, perhaps. So 
for most people, I would assume that it is an entirely healthy way of life. It's interesting for female health that I found as um, females get older, those of us who choose um, a vegan diet actually have issues with their bones and osteoporosis. And also the depression can be linked to um, having a deficiency in B12 as well. So um, a really good friend of mine who has chosen to be a vegan for the last three years, she now has osteoporosis, she now has to have medication for it. And she is a, she's a doctor herself, she, she shrunk three inches as well. So now that she has chosen vegan living and, and really healthy living as well, so she eats her carrot tops, for example, as well as the carrots. And they're delicious. I'd never thought of doing that before. So um, her combinations of taste from a vegan diet are amazing. Her brother is an organic farmer and he farms organic beef. So his point about having heart attacks from eating red meat is processed industrial farming practices. They take the beef, they bring the animal to the, uh, to the slaughterhouse. The animal can smell the fear and death. And then you're digesting something that is full of chemicals and hormones with fear. And then we're getting the heart attacks from the red meat. So I just spoke to my dad inside. I just cooked the dinner. I was like, dad, were you, would you ever be a vegan? And he went, no, <laughs> and thumped the table. I like my traditional diet. So fish on a Friday and pig all year long. And they did not waste a single ounce of that pig. So the neighbors came in and they had the black pudding and nothing was wasted or spared of the pig. Um, and even the, the processing of the pig manure as part of the refertilization of the ground it was very much a circular system. Everything enclosed, included. Uh, we have this great word in Irish called mehel. So it's, it's uh, let's say at the moment it's apple season. So you call your friends out to help you. Or if it's a hay harvesting, you'll have a mehel and people, all your neighbors come along and we help. So very much the killing of the pig was a mehel. Wow. I just want to quickly add um, that I totally agree that for many people, veganism may not be healthy. I know you say, um, as a young woman, I know a lot of people that suffer, for example, with eating disorders and things like that. And the, one of the worst things for someone with a history of disordering eating is tightly controlling what you can and can't eat so for, although i think for many people it is healthy if it is not healthy for you i think it's important that everyone would respect that as well just want to add that okay so you're you're not then saying that we should all become vegans or are you saying that ideally we should all become vegans i would say undeniably i think a, a vegan diet would have a positive impact on the planet if we were all to undertake it I think saying that everyone should become vegan is not taking into account far too many factors, including, for example, your health, where you are, what access you have to vegan foods, vegan alternatives, whether you have the time to make the changes to become vegan, whether you have the um, financial stability and the, the ability to become vegan. And so I think those who can should but I understand that many can't, and that is absolutely fine. I think if you start telling people off for not being vegan because they can't, then that can be a very counterproductive way to continue. Right. So, you probably know the restaurant Cranks. And I often, um, I used to go there beforehand. So for me, how do you know someone's a vegan? They tell you. 
So uh, oftentimes my vegan friends, it's just, it's, it's difficult to invite them to events, et cetera, because they come with a list of, of cranky, still considered by some notions, but vegan food is fantastic. But I think that the question is, how do we sustainably balance our diet? So how can we shop sustainably from a local support, uh, a local source of protein? So where do you get your protein from? Is it a high caliber? How is that protein even farmed? So for example, you started um, talking about almond milk, but the amount of chemicals now put on the almond milk that we're now digesting ourselves, we really have to re-envisage how we digest food, how, where we get our food from, regenerative farming, and exactly what is the more sustainable solutions and choices, economical choices we can make as well. So there's one point in Dublin, it was fascinating for years, they were trying to get ladies to eat more healthily and feed their families healthily. And the women joined um, a fitness club and the fitness people, they had to pay to be part of this fitness thing. And the fitness group said, eat chickpeas. And all of a sudden they're eating the chickpeas. So it's a mindset. So to come away from, as you suggested, Sammy, that cranky, you should, 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 to here's a suggestion. You know, if you eat this, it's healthier, it's better for your family, it's more economical, less plastic. There are other solutions that we can and may explore. And, and the way you, you suggest those changes to the diet as well. It's so important, Anthony, that we do get a choice. And vegan food is delicious, but so is my steak. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sammy, you are committed to veganism for the foreseeable future then? For the foreseeable future, I'm certainly not tempted to... Yep. Although I love a steak, I'm not tempted to go back, that's for sure. No. Right. On the other hand, Deirdre, you're not going to give up your steak or your black puddings. Oh, lovely black puddings. But it's funny, the healthy choices you, you make. A vegan colleague gave up cigarettes and started eating wine gums instead. She didn't realise where gelatin came from. So oh. we really have to educate <laughs> people in the choices that you're making. What are you swapping what for? <laughs> you know? Very important that we, 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 we balance the situation. Okay. Well, thank you both for your, your thoughts on, on this uh, very important topic. And before we close, I'd just like to ask for your thoughts on what's been going on with Extinction Rebellion over this last week, because you're aware that uh, they generate a lot of controversy by blockading the printing works and stopping a lot of newspapers from being distributed on Saturday. Um, the, there is a rumour that the government wants to reclassify Extinction Rebellion as organised crime and Extinction Rebellion itself says the police are being extremely heavy-handed in these later stages of the demonstration by using all sorts of legal excuses, uh, using in particular the, uh, the Covid regulations to drive people off the streets. What's your reaction to what's going on? Should people break the law or, or what? Um, Deirdre, would you like to go first? So having been part of Extinction Rebellion in Britain and the UK and a fantastic convivial festival ambience outside Parliament um, Square in London, I can vouch for the behaviour when I was present at the time and it was very encouraging, positive, intellectual debate uh, involving young people and families on the future of our country. So using COVID regulation to hinder the meeting of more than six people can be viewed very, very suspiciously. So we have the right to protest. We should regard that right and, and save that right preciously. Extinction Rebellion are doing a really good job in actually sharing that conversation in a meaningful way. 
So being heavy handed with young people is really going to backfire, I think. In Brexit, your country seriously is in trouble. And the last thing you want is to make malicious, militant teenagers and families oppose the, the, the forces that are in power. So th there are ways to do things, of course. Um, Nonviolent dialogue is extremely important and very well practiced by Extinction Rebellion and to be commended. So I, I'm, I'm pretty horrified by the corralling of, of rebels and how they're being treated currently, especially with the re religious dimension. So we've had some really great faith groups involved in Extinction Rebellion in the UK. And this is how you're being rewarded in 2020. It's, um, it's quite fearful in some of us who are peaceful and who do want to have a positive change. Thank you. Well, as a perhaps somebody not so heavily involved, but nonetheless uh, affected by the future of the planet, as, as we all will be, although you'll probably be affected by it for quite a lot longer than some of us. Sammy, what's your what's your take on what's been going on? Yeah, I'd say on the whole, I agree with what Deirdre just said, um, particularly peaceful protests. Um, should have a mutual respect between the protesters and those who are enforcing or overseeing it. It's really important that, although obviously at the moment um, our country is facing some some serious things they're dealing with COVID, particularly we can't use that as an excuse to let every single other thing fall to the sidelines until there's a convenient time to deal with it. Um, and so I think it's really important that protests are allowed to and do continue with respect assuming that they are undertaken with respect and fair, fairly and um that so i think yeah it's really important that they can and do continue in an appropriate way but just on the point of blockading the presses so that four national newspapers did not actually get out to the newsstands on saturday people who have said that's uh, denial of free speech would you, either of you, see it as that? Is the press free in the UK? That's my question. Who owns the press? We'll, we'll leave that hanging, shall we? Uh, Sammy, what do you, did you, did you get your paper on Saturday? Um, well, being a 22-year-old graduate, I do not read the paper. Um, my news app did update as normal, so my access to the free press was not impacted. Okay, well, thank you both. And thank you for your thoughts on this and uh, on veganism. I think that's really interesting. And I'm, I much appreciate your taking the time to talk to the Sustainable Futures Report. Thanks again. You can follow Deirdre Lane at Shamrock Spring on Twitter and on Facebook as well. Both Sammy Bishop and Deirdre Lane are on LinkedIn. And in other news, nations suing governments, deforestation and population, and CO2 as a fuel. Carol Dance draws my attention to an action by Torres Strait Islanders. Climate change is putting life on the islands of the Torres Strait at risk. Advancing seas are already threatening homes, as well as damaging burial grounds and sacred cultural sites. Many islanders are worried that their islands could quite literally disappear in their lifetimes without urgent action, with severe impacts on their ability to practice their law and culture. The islanders are taking a climate change complaint against Australia, 
to the Human Rights Committee of the United Nations. This case is the first of its kind in the world. They'll ask the United Nations Committee to find that international human rights law means that Australia must increase its emission reduction target to at least 65% below 2005 levels by 2030, going net zero by 2050, and phasing out coal. The outcome will undoubtedly be watched with interest around the world. We in Britain have come to know that former Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott believes that actions to tackle the climate crisis are about as sensible as making sacrifices to appease the volcano gods. Such attitudes are shared to a great extent by the present Australian government, which keenly advocates fossil fuels, understandably as coal exports provide a major element of the national income. How much longer they will find a ready market may depend on how much more the government annoys the Chinese, but that's another story. If you burn fossil fuels, you release CO2, carbon dioxide, the greenhouse gas. Not much you can do about it at the individual vehicle level, but at major industrial sites and power stations, carbon capture and storage, or carbon capture and utilisation, is the holy grail. If you capture the CO2, what can you do with it? Well, Argonne National Laboratory in the United States announces a new electrocatalyst which effectively converts carbon dioxide and water into ethanol. Ethanol is an ingredient in nearly all US gasoline and is widely used as an intermediate product in the chemical, pharmaceutical and cosmetics industries. The process resulting from our catalyst would contribute to the circular carbon economy, which entails the reuse of carbon dioxide, said DGLU, senior chemist in Argonne's Chemical Sciences and Engineering Division, and a case scientist in the Pritzker School of Molecular Engineering, University of Chicago. Certainly the process would slow down the release of CO2, but it's not a closed circle. CO2 will be emitted and lost if the ethanol is used in road fuel and will be re-emitted when the products of the other industries are eventually discarded. Patron Esteban Velas Vega contacted me about an article he saw in Nature on deforestation and world population sustainability. The author's opening remarks include we evaluate the probability of avoiding the self-destruction of our civilization. Based on the current resource consumption rates and best estimate of technological rate growth, our study shows that we have very low probability, less than 10% in most optimistic estimate, to survive without facing a catastrophic collapse. They continue... It is highly unlikely to imagine the survival of many species, including ours, on Earth without trees. In this sense, the debate on climate change will be almost obsolete in case of a global deforestation of the planet. Of course, some people are not faced by this at all. Elon Musk of Tesla cars and SpaceX believes we should leave the Earth and colonise the planets. He has said he would be happy to die on Mars as long as it's not on impact. The authors of this study have considered the idea. Here's what they say. We connect such probability of survival without facing a catastrophic collapse to the capability of humankind 
to spread and exploit the resources of the full solar system. According to Kardashev's scale, which measures a civilization's level of technological advancement based on the amount of energy they are able to use in order to spread through the solar system, we need to be able to harness the energy radi radiated by the sun at a rate of four times 10 to the power of 26 watts. Our current energy consumption rate is estimated at around 10 to the power of 13 watts. As shown in the subsection, statistical model of technological development and numerical results of the following section, a successful outcome has a well-defined threshold and we conclude that the probability of avoiding a catastrophic collapse is very low, less than 10% in most optimistic estimate. President Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil is another not phased by all this. Under his rule, the chainsaws have never stopped. And finally, someone recently sent me an email which started like this. Climate change doesn't stop for anyone. It doesn't pause for pandemics. It doesn't go on a summer recess and it doesn't reward good intentions. And the wildfires in California haven't stopped either. That's why I'm concerned at the measures the British government is taking to suppress the current Extinction Rebellion protests. Calling the activists criminal lawbreakers is particularly ironic in a week when a British government minister has announced in Parliament that the government intends to break international law. And that's it. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. And I'm delighted to say that people are listening in rapidly increasing numbers. I must be doing something right, but please do get in touch and tell me what else you'd like me to focus on. At the moment, I get my stories by scanning the media and picking up what I think is interesting. But some people do write with ideas and I'm always grateful for more. As always, you can contact me at mail at anthony-day.com. Thanks also to my ever-loyal patrons who contribute a small amount each month to help cover the costs of hosting and researching for this podcast. Your support is immensely appreciated. You too can become a patron, and the details are at patreon.com slash sfr. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash sfr. Before I go... Here's an item from the iNewspaper which shows why you should be kind to wildlife. A gentleman in his 80s was eating his dinner when he became annoyed at a fly buzzing around him. He took aim with an electronic fly swat and tried to dispatch the insect for good, unaware of a gas leak in the kitchen. When he took aim, a spark from the swat ignited the gas. The gas cylinder exploded, demolished part of his kitchen and caused a section of his roof to blow off. Local reporters said the man managed to escape with just a burn to his hand, but the house is currently uninhabitable. The fate of the fly is unknown. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. Thank you.